1: Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to
2: another edition of Backstage Chicago. I'm Lisa Fielding from WBBM News Radio. And today we're in the beautiful, historical, magnificent Palmer House Hotel. And magic is in the air. And we're here talking with Dennis Watkins. And Dennis, you are the in-house magician here.
0: I suppose that's true. I've been running my show, The Magic Parlor, here at the Palmer House for the last 10 years. Or rather, New Year's Eve this year, in just a couple weeks, we will celebrate 10 years here at the hotel.
2: Thanks for being my guest today, uh, talking everything about magic. And we talked... In late August, kind of ahead of the fall, before you you were reopening uh-huh. since the pandemic, tell me a little bit about how um, the shows have been since then and how the audiences have reacted to uh, the, the, the grand reopen of arts arts and culture in Chicago.
0: You bet. You know, there's there's something really remarkable that happened in August when we reopened the show is that the audience came in the doors with a different appetite for live entertainment. They had been deprived of it for a long, long time. And the audiences were small coming in the door in August. You know, that was right when Delta was hitting and they were small, but they were mighty. The people that were there were really excited to be there. And in the months since August, we've seen our audiences continue to grow both in size and excitement. I think that uh, the one of the, I guess it's, it might sound strange to say, Lisa, but one of the, the fortunate side effects of the pandemic for me is that i feel like i got a better lens on why people go to a magic show right and it's for a community experience of joy and wonder and that community experience is something that people weren't getting for a long time and now that we're back open i'm watching people experience that thing freshly in a new and different way or a way that maybe they'd forgotten they could do so the audiences have been remarkable really fun
2: that's great to hear now let's rewind a little you're a really interesting guy you come from an interesting family kind of take me back how does one become a magician how does one choose magic as a career and become a live performer
0: um, I think there are a lot of different routes into choosing magic. Um, I have a unique one, I think, or, or rather I got really lucky because my granddad was a magician. My granddad, Ed Watkins, was a very good close-up magician. And he ran a magic shop in Texas called Douglas Magicland for about 30 years. And so for a kid who... Wanted to do magic. I had everything I wanted at my fingertips. My granddad's knowledge. My uncle was also a magician for a long, long time. Uh, He's an actor now. It's kind of the same job, frankly. Um, So I had those two to guide me and teach me. And then I had my grandfather's network of magicians and colleagues and friends. uh, And all the knowledge that he learned from running a magic shop for 30 years. So my route into it was through my family. A lot of people get into magic for a lot of different reasons, you know, it's a, you know, for nerdy people like me, it's a great art because I can practice it alone in my house, uh, or could when I was a kid. Um, and a lot of people find their way to it uh, through different ways. You know, I also studied theater, um, and I studied theater because I wanted to be a magician. But I know a lot of people who have done a different route who have were studying theater and somehow found their way into the art of magic, and and started pursuing it that way. I think a lot of different paths. Mine is definitely through my family, uh, and I couldn't be more grateful. You know, my, my granddad was a very, very, very good magician, was an excellent teacher, and just one of the, the greatest people I've ever known. So I was fortunate to have a really strong, direct mentor.
2: What is your earliest memory of learning tricks, and when did you kind of realize, you know, this is for me, I
0: kind of like this? I, I've been trying to place that earliest memory uh, for a while because I re- I have very strong memories of what I think is the first magic show I performed. Uh, and I remember the, the tricks I was performing in that show, and I was around the age of eight. So that means I must have started learning to do that trick somewhere around the age of seven, according to my memory. My grandfather has passed, so I haven't really asked him. But um, those memories... Uh, of early magic days they're pretty fun my strongest memories are of actually the time that i spent with my granddad at their house learning to do stuff you know it was really interesting they my granddad at some point in my childhood had left the magic shop and was running a photography business with my dad uh, and I would spend a lot of time at my grandparents' house and we would go into uh, what we called the blue room in his house because all the walls were blue. Um and we'd go in the blue room where he had these trunks full of magic props and they held this remarkable sense of wonder and mystery to them and I always wanted to just open them up and and play with them the moment I got there and dive in Uh, but we had we had some rules around it right he had to be there and he had to guide me through the things and um, partially because you can mess that stuff up and partially because maybe there was stuff like flash paper that would explode in there who knew Um, but my memories the strongest memories I have of the early days are sitting with him in their house, working our way through these incredibly intricate and old props that were at that point made by hand. Now they're all machine manufactured and things, but they were generally things that he would be able to tell me who made this thing. And this is what it does. And this is how it works. And this is the illusion it creates. And those memories are super, super strong in me. Uh, And they're the memories that I think sparked the the script for the show the magic parlor here at the palmer house
2: and do you remember your first performance in front of an audience maybe your family or something like that do you remember that sometimes performers remember that spark and they got the applause or the laugh or the wonder and that kind of got them the bug to continue in live performance do you remember your first performance
0: i think i do i think (laughs) it was my first one and i remember doing this piece of magic that we call magicians call a square circle and at that point you know i was eight years old so all the magic i was doing was prop driven there was no skill involved in performing this thing, right? The prop did all the work for you. And it was a a little production prop, a box that you can show empty in several ways, and then pull out scarves and flowers and all kinds of cool stuff. And I have a pretty vivid memory of performing that piece for a small living room of people, for a kid's birthday, for a neighbor, uh, when I was around the age of eight. And as far as my 43-year-old memory can recall, that was one of the very first performances. It's... The first memory i have of performing a piece of magic and and realizing that the people on the other end the audience didn't know how it worked yeah right um i i have other memories of learning to do the tricks and how to execute them and exploring the props and the methods but that's the first memory i have performing it and realizing that there was mystery on the other side of the table i guess i had experienced that as an audience member But in watching my granddad do these things, even as a kid, to me it felt like a puzzle because I wanted to learn how to do it. And that was the next thing we were going to do every time, right? He was going to show it to me and then teach me how to do it. So the mystery, the wonder was there, uh, but very very short-lived for me. And I remember... The experience of pulling scarves out of this production box and going, these people think this is magic. <laughs> <laughs> did you
2: continue performing into high school and in your adult years, obviously? And how did that road lead you here?
0: Oh, uh, it's a, it's a, for me, it's a fascinating story. I hope it will be for you <laughs> too. Um, I, I remember being in middle school and telling my parents, you know what? I think, I think I want to be a magician when I grow. I think I want that to be my job. It had been my hobby. It had been. The thing that I loved, you know, I, I grew up in a small Texas football town, and I'm the kid doing card tricks, right? My brothers all played football football captains, not me. I'm doing card tricks in my room. Um, so in my family, where my granddad had been a magician and my uncle had been a magician, it made sense. And thankfully, I didn't have parents who said... Oh, you need a backup plan let's go to law school first uh my mom looked at me and said oh you need some acting lessons this is what you need nice. so we uh signed me up for theater classes and i started taking theater classes in middle school and then i did in high school and i studied acting in college and that led me here i i went to southern methodist university in dallas which has a really remarkable theater school at the meadow school of the arts and I studied uh, also at the British American Dra- Drama Academy in London. And my college experience of studying theater in that little conservatory at SMU uh, connected me with some really great theater artists. Or, uh, I mean, none of us were great theater artists. We were in college, right? We, we were babies. We knew nothing. Turns out some of them are great theater artists these days. But um, we, we developed some really strong relationships. And there was a group of us uh, who moved from... Southern Methodist University to Chicago to start a theater company. Uh, That theater company is the House Theater of Chicago and Nathan Allen was the artistic director. He and I went to college together. Um, We actually, I met Nathan when I was going to visit SMU for a scholarship interview because he had been awarded the scholarship I was interviewing for, university paired us. I stayed with him uh, in his dorm for a weekend uh, and turns out four years later, we moved to Chicago together to start this theater company. Um, and the house, we started with a play called Death and Harry Houdini. Uh, Nathan wanted to start a company that used a lot of remarkable, or uh, I'm using that word a lot, in this game, using a lot of uh, varied tools in storytelling. Magic was one of the ones that was really exciting to our group of people, and I brought that That vocabulary to the table, and so we created a play called "Death and Harry Houdini," all about Harry Houdini. We had no money at the time, uh, but we opened the show on October 31st of 2001. Halloween is the day that Houdini died, Um, so we had a terrible idea of running a séance before the show. Killed it. Bad idea. Don't don't do that if you're going to produce a play. Uh, But the the play was actually fun and exciting, and the company got a good bit of press off of it and we were able to grow and produce again and then we produced Death and Harry Houdini again in 2003 with a little bit more resource and put a lot more magic in it and then over the following 18 years we did several more productions of Death and Harry Houdini Uh, both in Chicago, at the Adrian R Center in Miami. Um, And we built that play to use a lot of magic. There was Harry's water torture cell. People were getting cut in half, appearing, disappearing. I did a walk on broken glass, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, And somewhere in that 20 years now, because the company just turned 20 years old, right? It's 2021. I'm older than I used to be. Um, uh, right? It only goes one <laughs> exactly. way. Um, so in that 20 years, somewhere in there, I had been helping run the company administratively, and I realized that that was not for me, that running, being an administrator for a not-for-profit theater company is a noble pursuit, and it wasn't quite mine. So I, I left that position, and I started doing card tricks. I started gigging, um, which uh, very quickly led into a real job of of working through different agents and and all kinds of nonsense and i worked my way up to working good uh good gigs and the house theater at one point wanted to do a fundraiser and we produced a one-night show of uh, a a magic show that we made up a name for we called it the magic parlor Uh and that night the fundraiser went great we made a little bit of money it was fun uh and then i had a conversation with nathan and he said would you be interested in doing sort of an ongoing show that we could sell tickets to and i said well maybe but you know i gig on friday and saturday nights that's where i make my money so i don't know how to make it happen he's like we'll do it late night we'll do a late night 10 30 p.m friday night thing at the chopin theater in wicker park in the basement parlor which feels like it fits the name of the show and it was quirky and it was weird and we started doing that we started doing it on Friday nights, and it was full, you know, we and at some point, we came to a place, after about two years of running it on Friday nights, uh, where we wanted to see if it had stronger legs, so we thought, could we move it downtown, could we gussy it up a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, it was a grungy Wicker Park Theater, basement theater situation, uh, what if we landed someplace that could make an upscale experience, and... Of all the places, I had no idea it would work this way, but we were able to get a meeting with Dean Lane, who's the general manager here at the Palmer House, and that man uh, loves magic and had a big imagination and was able to see that this might be something that the hotel would be interested in. And that was uh, 10 years ago in a couple weeks, right? Now
2: tell folks what your show's about. I've been there, and you do amazing card tricks, and you do (laughs) mental tricks as well, which are mind-blowing. So kind of describe, without spoiling it, what people can um, expect if they come to the magic parlor.
0: You bet. So I think that audiences have a a, a wide uh, picture of what a magic show might be. I, in the magic parlor here at the Palmer House, I perform close-up magic. We limit the house size to 44 guests. There are only two rows of seating. Everybody is close to the action. And more importantly, to me at least, everyone is involved in the show. Not in ways where people are made fun of or made to look foolish or embarrassed, but in fact, in ways that make them feel magical, hopefully. Knock on wood, right? Mm -hmm. That's the goal. Um, And I call the show an intimate evening of classic magic. Our guests come through the front doors of the Palmer House. They enter this big, glamorous, romantic lobby. Uh, you can't walk in here without feeling a warm nostalgia for an era that maybe you didn't even experience. But you, you feel it, right? And uh, you come up the escalators into this little bitty room that seats 44 people. And we do 90 minutes of close-up magic and mind reading. I tell the audience at the beginning of the show, it's you, it's your thoughts and your choices that create the real magic. And even the card magic, the sleight of hand, uh, lives in the imaginations and hands of the audience. And then we move into what I think is a really fun portion of the show. So we start with classic sleight of hand close-up magic. And then we move into mind reading and mentalism which is a newer vocabulary of magic for me yeah. uh, in that I've only really been playing in that world for about 15 years. And I think about my, my childhood as a kid, I just wasn't interested in it. And I don't know why, because right now it's the most interesting magic for me. Um, and we spend a lot of time in the world of mind reading and mentalism, which really lets the audience drive the ship during that portion of the show. Uh, and then we close out with a little bit more classic magic. And then for guests who really want it, We moved to the Encore room, which is a smaller room in the hotel up on the third floor with a little fireplace and wood paneled walls. And and in that room, we have a, a round table set for 10 and I will sit there with 10 guests and we will do a little bit more super close-up tabletop magic, have a little Q&A chat and that kind of thing for the guests who opt in for that experience.
2: Now, the Palmer House just celebrated 150 years, and you mentioned how these walls could talk here. And what's it like for you to do a show in some of these rooms that really are historical? Does it add to your kind of aura and the mystique to your show?
0: I think it does. You know, the... the um, environment that this building creates is insanely cool um you can't walk in here and not not just pause for a moment and and go wow and then you walk around to all the little rooms you know the the entertainers that played the the empire room that list of people judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, and Harry Blackstone, the magicians that played this room. Cardini played this room. It's an amazing thing. And when you walk into the sort of green room off the side of the Empire Room, you see all these black and white photos of the artists that had performed on that stage. And right now, they're all displayed around the hotel because of the 150th anniversary. So guests are given an even bigger look into that. And you know, the little room that we started the Magic Parlor in. It's called the Crest Hill Room. It's on the third floor. It's the room we use for the Encore Room these days. And again, it has wood panel walls and a little fireplace. And I'm told that that is a room that was a favorite room to play cards in for one Al Capone. Like the history in every nook and cranny of this building is palpable. Um, And I think it's a really remarkable experience because our guests... You know, we come here on Friday and Saturday nights. It's um, when the hotel is full. It's when uh, there's a wedding in the Empire Room, and you can see it, and you can hear the band, and uh, it's not, I don't know what it felt like in 1940 when there was a supper club in there, but, but we, we, you get a glimpse of it, right? Uh, and as an entertainer, your life can take so many different paths, right? And I know magicians who work in nightclubs. That is not for me. I know magicians who work in backyard parties. That is not for me. Um, I know magicians who do all kinds of nonsense. Um, And frankly, doing a little parlor scale magic show for 44 guests at a time five times a week in a hotel like this is the dream job i never knew i wanted and somehow i landed here and it just blows my mind every day
2: let's talk about why people love magic so much i think back when i was a kid i think almost every kid boy and girl buys a magic set at some point. I think I told you the last time we talked, there was a magician here called Marshall Brodeen. Yes. and he played Wizzo on Bozo. That's right. And kids who grew up in Chicago knew Marshall Brodeen because his commercials ran literally every two seconds <laughs> and parents were forced to buy his magic. His TV t- <laughs> magic card. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I remember my first magic trip now. I didn't pursue it, you know, but it's something that, as adults, we remember that and we tap into what we loved as kids. Do you find that that's why people love what you do? That's why people come um, to still see magic? I feel like there's been a little bit of a resurgence in that, you know, America's Got Talent, uh, uh, Fool Us with Penn & Teller. Also we've got the Magic Immersive going on in Chicago now. Do you find that more people are tapping into that childhood and thinking, you know, I really want to see a magic show?
0: I think people are. I think that's a really wonderful thing. The marketplace for magic is hotter than I've ever seen it in my life. I think my granddad would have killed to have a marketplace for magic like we have today. And I think you hit the nail on the head that a lot of it has to do with shows like America's Got Talent and Penn and Teller Fool Us, allowing audiences to see magic outside of the context of a kid's birthday party. And magic is great there, and the performers that work those those parties are great, and some of them are really remarkable artists. Um, but for a while there, I think that's all people really thought magic was, right? Um, it was either that or David Copperfield, right? And uh, there was very little in between. Shows like Fool Us are really wonderful. You were on that show. I was on that show. It was a blast. Yeah, I did not fool them, oh, but no. but. But I had a great time, and those two guys, Penn and Teller, are just remarkable. And I'm a Buffy fan, and Allison Hannigan was
1: the host, and I got to meet Allison.
2: Yes, yes. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
1: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. But... Uh, and was just here
0: and we talked about you. He was. Oh, good. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs>
1: um, well,
0: yeah, the, so the those shows, and one of the things that I think is really remarkable about Fool Us specifically is that Penn and Teller have a goal there of of helping magic appeal to wider audiences. And that means that they want a bunch of different kinds of magicians performing a lot of different kinds of magic. And that means audiences to the tune of millions of people a week are seeing magicians have different artistic voices, right? And that's something we didn't see before. Again, it was David Copperfield or The Birthday Party, right? There's two voices that people knew. And now we start to see that magic has an appeal to a grown-up audience and there are different artistic voices that can speak differently. Eugene Berger Uh, as a Chicago magician who passed away just a handful of years ago, who was a a great mentor to every magician in the city, who would always say, the house of magic has many rooms," And he meant that there are many different artistic voices here. And now, people are starting to see that the way that they understand that two singers are not the same. Um, And I think that they're discovering that they can opt in to a magic experience without having to feel like a little kid like in a, and like and, and getting to feel like a little kid, right? It's the same thing. Um, I think that magic serves an audience in a different way than a lot of entertainment. Um, It doesn't mean it's a better form of entertainment, but it is a different form of entertainment. And the part of the imagination that magic speaks to uh, is a vital part for people, I think. And it's one that we we ignore. We we consume a lot of a story. People consume stories all day long in different ways. Um, And rarely do they come with uh, a, a profound sense of wonder and mystery. And... We all need to hold space for a profound sense of wonder and mystery, whether we know it or not. Uh, And I think that if we can give people the chance to tap into that for a few minutes at a time, we're doing a real service. And a a little while ago, I said there was something that happened in the pandemic that made me understand a little bit more about why we do the job that we do. And it has to do largely with, I think, that of, of being able to sort of let go um, during COVID nineteen, the early days of the pandemic, we were all done. There was no the the mysterious was very scary to us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we were we were experiencing mystery every day surrounding this virus. Could we get it by checking our mail? Could we get it by who knows, right? Um, and so every bit of mystery that we encountered was terrifying. Yeah. Um, but there's a kind of mystery that we can experience that is fulfilling and exciting and. A spectacular and we kind of need it you know Absolutely. and we forget that we need it and we're grown-ups and we have jobs and we have lives and we have kids um, and all, a lot of the mystery is scary and I thought about this a lot in the days pre-pandemic when I was thinking about what you brought up which is that magic is hot it's everywhere I can see it on TV all the time Chicago is an amazing place for magic Pre-pandemic, one week I was like, "What's going on here? Let's let's do a Google search." I could have bought a ticket to 14 different magic shows that week. I mean, it's amazing, right? And I remember pre-pandemic talking to a friend of mine who's the co-owner of the Chicago Magic Lounge, and thinking, "Why why are we able to do this for a living? Um, why are people doing this?" And everywhere I went, I could go on. I could go on Facebook. I could go to. A stand-up comedy show Um, I could go to a play and everything had been touched by uh, uh, Trump era politics regardless of where you sit on that spectrum uh, everything, your stand-up comic was talking about it, it was all over your Facebook feed it was the overarching theme of any play that you were seeing because nobody could avoid touching it in any way, shape or form but you know where that doesn't exist is in a card trick or the, the 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 experience that you have when you have it, and our guests were coming in the door and getting 90 minutes of entertainment that was not that was that was nostalgic, that was old school, and was 100% free of any of the things that were weighing us down. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons it works, right? Uh, you don't expect to go hear jokes about politics from the magician, uh, but you're gonna like either roll your eyes or be like, I've had enough of it when you go to, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say the venue's names because I like them.
2: (laughs) So I've been a challenge for you. I'm going to say people like me, I have to admit, I'm a big skeptic. I'm chronically logical. So I'm the first person to figure out a movie, you know, Uh uh and so I come to see your show and it drives me crazy because I can't, I mean, that's the point is you, you don't want to figure out what, what you're doing, but what you do is truly mind boggling. You did a trick with a book and a word or something without giving it away and, I, and you had me and participate and I, I couldn't even begin to figure out how you did that and it was it was frustrating but in a good way oh good so good. <laughs> i'm assuming you like to challenge people like that for sure with what you do
0: i do definitely <laughs> you know when you i i tell people All the time that I think I have the best view of the show Uh, because I get to stand and look at your faces of the audience and you see why people come to a magic show when the show is starting, right? You see people who sit because they are and they're excited for the magic because they don't want to know how it works. They just want to live in the surprise and you go, great, you're awesome. And you have people who come in the doors, and you could see that they're a little skeptical. Maybe they didn't—they don't think magic is cool yet, or something. And then you see people who sit with their arms crossed in the back of the room. You're like, "All right, this is a battle of the wits." I know
2: that's kind of me. I right? admit it.
0: I like—I'm gonna—I'm gonna figure Ooh, you this out. This guy can do. Yeah, I'll figure you out, magician. <laughs> exactly. You're not gonna beat me. Exactly. Um, and you—you you can see everybody's different reason for being there. And the people who, you know. I, I wouldn't be so bold as to say that every person who comes in the doors with their arms crossed going, yeah, I'm going to beat this magician guy, uh, spends 90 minutes enjoying wonder and doesn't care about how it works by the end. But that's kind of the goal, right? Yeah. But I will say that in watching the show, I bet we get that guy for at least a couple minutes. Oh, yeah. right? You know, I
2: remember in my audience, almost everybody shook their head and couldn't believe what just happened to them.
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah, right? And I think everybody... I, I, as a magician, I can relate to the, the the part of you that goes, oh, that's so frustrating, <laughs> right? Um, because I go see magic shows, and from time to time, I will admit that it's not frequent, but from time to time, I don't know how something works. And uh, I, I won't pretend that as a magician, it's not frustrating, but I will say that every time that happens, I love it, man. I love it. Yeah, I get to sort of sit there for I a minute and be like, <laughs> whatever. I believe in magic for a minute. Mm-hmm. It's not magic. I know it's not magic. But I get, to, I get to live in a world that's a little bit bigger and broader uh, uh, than maybe I see every day. Mm-hmm. And it's an amazing feeling. Mm-hmm. There's a guy named Derek Delgadio who ran this show, created this show called In and of Itself uh, that's now on Hulu can watch it on Hulu. Um, And I saw that show when it opened at the Geffen Playhouse in New York, or excuse me, in LA. And then I went to New York to see it when it opened in New York. And I went to New York to see it because there there was a piece of magic in it I couldn't explain. I I think I developed some theories in the months between Uh seeing it in LA and New York. And I went and saw it in New York. It's like, nope, still can't explain it. Um, Which was frustrating, but also really Joyous and magical for me. It's it's amazing.
2: How do you keep your material fresh? Um, when I was talking to Pendjellet, he talked about how people love the close-up magic, and even I read somewhere that Chicago was the home of bar magic, that kind of thing. So definitely, you tap into that history and what people seem to be most wondering about is close-up magic. They can see and they have to trust their own eyes, but then they don't. So how do you keep? your material kind of fresh and new with every show? And it depends on the audience too. I'm sure they give you new material. Depends on the personalities
0: that are out there, right? Absolutely. It's And it's, you know, as a performer, it's a big part of it is how do we keep it fresh for me? If it's not fresh for me, it's not fresh for you when you come in the door, right? And uh, I'm, a, I'm a, I I'm love my job and I love to work. And in a, a, a normal year, 2020, in 2021 are clearly exceptions but in a normal year my team executes about 400 shows a year so we we do a lot of shows and it's hard to keep it fresh um doing work that puts uh performance in the hands of the audience keeps it fresh for me because if i give if i'm going to give you the wheel um then i i kind of have to be awake right and there's a you know Uh, I think it's one of the things that makes the Magic Parlor a great home for audience members who like magic is that I do put a lot of control in the hands of the audience. The mind-reading portions of the show specifically, you can do a lot of things there that will drive the direction of the show. And... One of the things that makes that fun for people, because a lot of audience members can feel pretty intimidated by that idea, like I'm going to have I'm going to have to volunteer in this show. Like, what's going on? I don't I don't want to do that. I don't want to be on stage. Uh, is that well? There's no stage. First of all, it's a small room of forty people. But uh, those folks, you guys, and the and the audience, you're the scene partners. You're not the props. You're not a prop. You're not something that we're not going to make jokes against you or or, or with you, but you're an actual scene partner in the show. And, you know, I have a, a background in acting and a good scene partner keeps you awake and keeps you fresh. Right. And a new scene partner does that every time. And in every show, I have 44 new scene partners. Um, and I have no idea what you're going to do. Yeah, <laughs> I have no yeah. idea how you're going to behave. Uh-huh. And uh, the best way to keep the show fresh is by really letting it live with the people in the room.
2: And laugh with each other and even laugh at yourself when you you know, get blindsided by whatever you're doing. Yeah,
0: right. It, it, we do get to laugh at me. That's allowed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. What would your grandfather think of all this? Uh, you talked about how his mind would be blown by how popular magic is now. Um, what would he think of you now of, of really continuing the tradition? And I know you have kids yourself. Uh, will you pass this along?
0: Oh, the well, fourth generation? Uh, good. I, you know, if my, my son is two and a half now, mm-hmm. so if he decides to do something foolish like go to law school or medical school <laughs> instead of being a magician, I'm going to try not to be disappointed. Uh, he can do whatever he wants, and I will, I will, I will love and support it. Um, but there is a big part of me that says, oh, generation four, That would be really fun. It would be really exciting. And, you know, during the... pandemic we did a lot of and we're still doing a lot of virtual shows and so we built a little broadcast studio in the house and mm. i'm able to do some really close-up magic because we can get cameras right on that and my son will come down now and he wants to sit at the table and play the shell game with mm. me where we follow the pea. it's his favorite thing to do so he's he's showing an interest and i'm, I'm trying not to uh discourage that now he's two and a half so he doesn't keep up with the p very well but uh but he's getting there but my granddad, I think, I think he would just be thrilled. You know, he passed away before we opened the magic parlor. Um, he saw me do so many magic shows during my life, um, and I know that he loved it. And I know that he loved that what I was doing was a gift that he gave me. Um, I'm, I do love magic. I, I can't imagine that I would have found my way to it the, without him, uh, and. As a kid, you know, we have different ambitions and, and and pictures of what the future looks like. And so like every kid magician, I was like, well, I mean, I want to play those big houses like David Copperfield and have smoke machines and awesome music and trucks full of props and blah, 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 blah. And my granddad would always say, well, kid, you know, you... You should be looking at some magic that you can do in people's living rooms, something like right in front of them, right? Um, And I was like, "Well, that's not. Why not? Why can't I have this chorus of dancers back?" And the the truth of the matter is that uh, we I might have been able to. create a career where I was performing those kinds of houses, but I stumbled into a career where I was doing the kind of magic that my granddad did, that he, the kind of magic that he tried to teach me to love and that he did teach me to love. Uh, And it's for 40 people at a time that can be done in somebody's living room. It's here at the beautiful Palmer house. Um, I think that this show would have made him so happy. I think he, he would have just absolutely loved it.
2: And you got your big 10 year show. Got ten years? Uh, yes, great. it's going to be on New Year's Eve, yes. But you're going to be celebrating all next year, right? That's right. Tell me a little bit about the show and how people can get tickets.
0: Yeah, people can get tickets through the website, which is MagicParlorChicago.com. Go to MagicParlorChicago.com. We have two shows on New Year's Eve a 7 o'clock show followed by a performance of the Encore Room, and then a 9.30 show followed by a champagne toast and a 10-year birthday cake reception. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to celebrate the show being 10 years old here at the hotel um, with just a little bit of extra extra fun. Um, the the show itself has some new pieces of magic that I'm putting in it on New Year's Eve just to, uh, to keep it fresh, frankly, but also because there's some pieces of magic that I've been... Uh, imagining in this show and working on putting in this show for a long time, uh, that when we reopened, I thought we would just, I would just start working them in, and it turns out that reopening a live show in a pandemic requires an amount of focus on other things. Um, But now they're starting to make their way in and on New Year's Eve we're going to do some new stuff that I'm really, really excited about. Um, And then we'll get to celebrate with champagne and cake. And who doesn't love that?
2: Exactly. Congratulations on 10 years. Here's to 100 years more. Amen. How about that? Congratulations. Congratulations. Dennis Watkins, thank you so much for joining us for uh, Backstage Chicago. Go to a show and prepare to be, right, your mind is blown when you leave your your room up there. I I feel... Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming up next week, we go into the Spiegel Tent Zoo on the 14th floor of the Cambria Hotel and talk to some of the cast members of and Zani. Subscribe to Backstage Chicago on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.